If you've ever purchased a rare piece of artwork or memorabilia, it's highly recommended that you also obtain a certificate of authenticity. I've never needed such a thing. Uh, the artists that have provided me with paintings like Janet and Kim, uh, I don't know that anybody's forging your work yet, um, but in the event that you guys really blow up, I'll need one. But the purpose of a certificate of authenticity is pretty obvious. You want to make sure that what you have is not, in fact, a forgery, that it's the real thing. One can hardly imagine something so terrible as spending a whole lot of money on, like, a baseball autographed by Babe Ruth, and then turning around to discover that really this is just the signature of an eBay con artist, right? You would have immediately lost the value of your purchase, and so you obtain a certificate of authenticity. Something that is real has the certificate of authenticity, proving it authentic. Likewise, the Holy Spirit serves as a sort of Christian version of a certificate of authenticity. What I mean is this. All real Christians, all genuine Christians, all true disciples have the Holy Spirit. So as we turn to Acts chapter 19 this morning and consider the first seven verses, I want this to be the main idea that percolates with you throughout the week, that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Our exhortation this morning is to evangelize apparent disciples, those who would seem to be disciples but are not, evangelize apparent disciples, and to evaluate ourselves or yourself. Once more, the main idea is that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Uh, outline, we're just going to do the first three verses, then verse four, then verses five and seven, and then the majority of our application will come. For those of you who are interested in such things, the manuscript will be posted as usual. Let's pray, and then uh, we'll give context and get into the text. Speak, Lord. Give us sober spirits, as we recognize the truth that you are in our midst this morning. Your holy presence is here among your people as we gather together on this Lord's Day. Help us to not take this lightly. Speak, Lord. Your people listen. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been working through the book of Acts, and we've summarized the whole book this way. Most of you can probably say this at this point. Uh, but we've said, Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. This is precisely what's happened. In chapter 1, Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he pours out his Holy Spirit on his church. And the church, filled with the Spirit, tells of the wonderful works of God. And again, that witness fills up the city of Jerusalem. God begins bringing people in. 
He begins adopting all those who turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus into his family. We see this pattern continue as the gospel goes, just like Jesus said it would, from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus, in the book of Acts, is building his church by the witness of his church, through the power of his word proclaimed, and the power of his Holy Spirit. He's doing it. And he has been doing it all the way up to chapter 19, which is where we find ourselves this morning. We're picking up with Paul, who is at kind of the the front end of what's referred to as his third missionary journey. He's made his way back to Ephesus as Apollos has left Ephesus and gone to Corinth. If you remember Apollos from a few weeks ago, he's described as this really eloquent and awesome speaker who accurately teaches the gospel, he accurately teaches about Jesus, but with this weird note that he knew only John's baptism. And we're not really sure what that means except for his theology, even though it was right about the gospel, right, main things are the plain things, it was off in regards to baptism. And so Aquila and Priscilla, after church, you know, they get with him in the church parking lot and they, they iron out his theology a little bit. They correct him and then he goes on preaching powerfully Jesus the Messiah. We read in verse 28, he vigorously refuted the Jews in the public square, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. I tell you that little bit of information because Paul this week is going to run into people who are also described as only knowing the baptism of John. But there's a significant difference. Apollos knows Jesus in addition to knowing whatever it is he knows about John's baptism. It becomes clear that these disciples of John, these disciples, are actually no disciples at all. That they don't know Jesus. And so they're like Apollos in that they know the baptism of John. They're unlike Apollos in that Apollos knows Jesus. They do not. That's going to become clear in just a second. So we read in verse 1 of chapter 19, while Apollos was in Corinth, he, he left Ephesus, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. Remember, Paul back in verse 23 is taking the long way back to Ephesus, uh, and he is, you see it in verse 23, strengthening all the disciples. So he's going about his business, he's traveling, he's strengthening the church, and he comes to Ephesus where he finds what he thinks, initially, are some disciples. Now, we don't know why he thinks they're disciples. We don't know if they're, they're hanging out with, with other Christians or they've learned the Christian language or maybe they're just living really godly lives. They, they're probably living according to the law of Moses. But something prompts Paul to ask some really pointed questions. Something about them causes Paul to go, these guys... Now, something's a little off. No, I don't know that they're Christians. Look at his questions. He has some diagnostic questions here, starting in verse 2. He asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized, he asked. Into John's baptism, they replied. And so the conversation, you can hear it. Have you received the Holy Spirit? What are you talking? We've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? What on earth then were you baptized into? Subtext, because it certainly wasn't Christ. Into John's baptism. And so Paul has asked these questions very intentionally. His first question, do you have the Holy Spirit, might as well be, do you understand the gospel? 
do you know who Jesus is? Because his assumption is that to know Jesus is to have the Holy Spirit. And the person who has the Holy Spirit will have, would have, obeyed Jesus by following his command to be baptized. And so the two questions work together. Paul believes and teaches that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. We see this in Romans 8, verse 9. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 1 Corinthians 6, 17. Anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. And notice when we receive the Holy Spirit, Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 13, in him you were sealed with the Holy Spirit when when you heard the truth, when you believed. And so it's Paul's contention that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. And so when he asks this question, do you have the Holy Spirit? And these guys say, no, the alarms are going off. These guys have the appearance of godliness, but none of its power. These guys have some, something Christian-y about them, but they don't have Christ. Now, I don't know what this looks like for them. You know, maybe they listened to Christian radio and had a Jesus fish on their car, and they, they, they watch the TV preacher, and uh, they attend Christian conferences every now and then. I, I don't know. And so he, he thinks they're Christian. They seem to be Christians to him. But when he asks these diagnostic questions, it becomes clear that they are not. And so he tells them in verse 4, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him. That is Jesus. So being baptized by John, John's baptism, really the whole point of it was to point to Jesus. It was a baptism of repentance. And so when you were baptized into John's baptism, you were recognizing your sin, you were expressing a desire for spiritual cleansing, you were saying, I'm going to follow God's law, and I'm going to do all of that in anticipation of God's Messiah. And so what Paul is saying to these followers of John's baptism You've only got part of the picture. Let me fill it out for you. You're almost Christians, but you're not there yet. And it's important that you believe in the one that John was pointing to because almost it doesn't count for much, right? The Golden State Warriors were almost NBA champions this year. It doesn't count for much. And so he, he says, you need to believe in Jesus, the one that John's baptism pointed to. You want to be cleansed of your sins? You want forgiveness? You want to be made pure? The one who can make you pure and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, he's come! The Messiah that John pointed to has arrived. We don't have all of what Paul said here, but I'm certain that it includes all of that essential gospel content that he says is of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. 
that Christ was crucified for sins in the tomb for three days and then raised up again by God bodily. He tells them, Jesus can forgive your sins. Jesus can free you from death. You need to believe in Him. Believe in the one who has died to forgive sins, in the one who has risen to free you from death, in the one who is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God right now for His church. They're going to respond really positively, as you'll see in a second. But Paul creates this opportunity to preach the gospel by assessing the situation. So so he asks those diagnostic questions. I think we do well to follow Paul's example. And what I mean is, we should not assume, just because somebody might speak Christian-y language or do Christian-y things, that that person is indeed a Christian. I think in the course of our conversation with others, we do well as God's ambassadors to ask questions to see whether or not those who might casually take on the name of Christ actually know Christ. So I don't know, I don't know that the, the question, do you have the Holy Spirit, would work today. Uh, just because people have learned the language of Christianity a little bit, and so immediately folks will just be like, yeah, of course, I, you know, I've had that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, and so I have the Spirit, of course. Maybe a, maybe a better question uh, might be along the lines of, um, where do you go to church? Are you a member there? When was the last time or how regularly do you attend Lord's Day services at your church? That last one is really more to the point, I think. There are so many professing Christians. Say they, say they know Jesus, say they love Jesus, but do not obey him in the simple matter of regularly gathering together with the church, of submitting to a church. That, I mean, I've seen that truth in my own life, just very pointedly, uh, just meeting other people over and over again. I think maybe my favorite example uh, was at a funeral here. Funerals aren't funny. I don't know why I'm laughing. Uh, at a funeral here, a woman actually, afterwards, you, you have like refreshments, uh, introduces herself. I'd been here about three years at this point. Uh, she comes up to me and introduces herself to me as, uh, hey, I'm so-and-so. I'm a member of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church right here. And I'd never seen her before in my life. And so I said, really, do you know who the pastor is there? It was me. It's me. I was the pastor. No idea who she was. And I didn't think it was the best time to have a, a conversation about ecclesiology and how actually if you're not in participation, you're not a member and, and all that fun stuff. So I just said, hey, actually, you know, eventually I'm the pastor. We'd love to see you on Sunday. And I never saw her again. And I share that story to show you that there are plenty of people, even though cultural Christianity is dying, it's, it's not yet dead, there are still plenty of people who will identify with Jesus and then disobey him. They will identify with Jesus, but not with his church. And biblically, that doesn't make any sense. Because Jesus identifies with his church. He says the church is his bride, the church is his body. We also have the illustration that the church is the the temple of God. It's where God's presence is. When Paul is persecuting the church, Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? 
You can't have Jesus without his church. There are a lot more almost Christians in our midst than I think we would like to admit. And so I think it's essential that we follow Paul's example in asking some of these questions and creating opportunities to share the explicit gospel with those who have heard Christian language and been around Christian things but have not actually become Christians. And then if it turns out, you ask these questions, it turns out that they do know Jesus, they won't mind because Christians generally really enjoy hearing about Jesus. Paul learns their situation. He shares Christ with them. He tells them to believe, to obey Jesus in baptism. And so they do, verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other languages and to prophesy. Now there were about 12 men in all. And so we see Paul shares the gospel. They believe, they are baptized, and then they give visible evidence of the Spirit's presence in their life. It shows up at this particular juncture in Acts in the form of uh, speaking in different languages and prophesying. Now, we've come across this a few times in Acts now, and so uh, just to refresh you a little bit, uh, this is not a normative pattern for the Christian life, right? In Acts, the order of uh, receiving the Spirit and, and being baptized, it's wonky. It's, not, it's, it's just unusual. And Luke, he mixes up the order a lot. And I think it's because he just sees all of these things as typically happening together primarily, um, and that's part of the pattern. And then secondarily, the, these outward manifestations of the Spirit, when you see the, the speaking in um, languages or tongues and the prophesying, is meant to show that God is with his people. That indeed the Spirit has come on these people who once did not have it. And so you can think of back in um, Acts 2, when the Spirit is first poured out. Everybody's speaking in tongues or languages and prophesying. And Peter says, this is fulfilling what Joel prophesied. We're, we're in the last days. The Messiah has come. The Holy Spirit is here. It's a, a new era. And the church is, is being built. And so what we find is every time the Spirit goes to a new, pers- new people group in Acts, these um, spiritual phenomena occur. And so uh, when initially at Pentecost, spiritual phenomena, speaking in other languages and prophesying. Uh, then you go forward a little bit when the gospel goes to the Samaritans in chapter 8. Do y'all remember that story? Uh, he, he shares, and they don't, they don't exhibit any of these spiritual phenomena. And so they send word to Jerusalem. They're like, hey, send John and Peter down here. John and Peter come down. I remember Samaritans and Jews, they don't like each other. They're like, are you sure the Samaritans believe the gospel and it's the same gospel as us? I'm like, well, yeah, they're believing in the same gospel. And they put their hands on them and the Spirit comes. And they have like Pentecost part 2. And the idea there, the purpose of this pattern is to show that the Samaritans have the same Jesus that the Jews have. That there's not a Samaritan church and a Jewish church. There is one church. It's the church of Christ. And so the same thing happens again in uh, chapter 10, only in reverse order. Uh, Peter is at Cornelius' house. He's preaching to now Gentiles, which Jews really didn't like Gentiles. And He's preaching to them and all of a sudden they repent of their sins and they believe and they start demonstrating these spiritual phenomena. And so once more, Peter's like, whoa, 
I, can't, I have to baptize these folks, and this is where the order is different, right? They, they're showing me they have the Holy Spirit, so we're going to have to baptize them. And the point or the purpose is that this group is included in the one people of God. There's not a Jewish people of God and a Samaritan people of God and a Gentile people of God. There is one people of God who shares the same Spirit of God, all united together in the same Christ. And so God's word is, is going out. And so now we come to chapter 19, and we see that this purpose of signifying God's work, of demonstrating the unity of the church, that it's taking place in chapter 19. And I think two additional things are happening here. Those two things are certainly happening, and I'll explain how in a second. But also, we're seeing the authority of Paul being demonstrated. See, John and Peter, they lay their hands on a group that then receives the Spirit. And it shows their authority as apostles. And so Paul does the same thing here. He puts his hands on the people, and then the Spirit comes. It shows his authority and legitimacy as an apostle. He is just as much an apostle as Peter and John. It's part of what's going on. And we also see here, because this happens, it's more permission for Paul to continue his ministry in Ephesus. If you remember back in chapter 16, Paul is on a missionary journey, and he is trying to go into Asia, that's where Ephesus is. And it says he's forbidden by the Holy Spirit. Don't know how, don't know why. He's just not allowed to go there. And so they end up going to Macedonia and planting the Philippian church. And now, as he later, he'd gone back to Ephesus on his way home and just kind of stopped there really briefly, not to do missionary stuff, but just to hang out. And then they say, hey, just stay here with us. And he says in 1821, I'll come back to you again if God wills. And so we have here God kind of saying, as he shows up in Ephesus on his return, really confirming his decision to return, saying, yeah, I will. My spirit's being poured out here. Work in this province. And really, as we'll see through the rest of the chapter, Ephesians is kind of like peak Paul. There's all kinds of like handkerchiefs that he's touching are like being sent out and they're healing people. It's, it's crazy. It's awesome. And so Paul is supposed to go to Ephesus. There's permission being granted. And the signs, this being a sign of the Spirit's presence and a sign of the unity in the church, I think it's just showing us this is the end of John the Baptist's ministry. These disciples of John the Baptist are also included in the people of God. And so um, all that to say, this pattern in Acts of the Holy Spirit and baptism and one does one happen and the other happen, it's irregular, it's unusual, right? The rest of the New Testament irons out what we think is kind of the normal pattern. Right? You're a Christian, you believe because the Holy Spirit's been given to you, and then you obey Christ with these vi visible signs of baptism and uh, repentance. So all that happens. These almost Christians become true disciples. And so, as I said before, I think one application is certainly to evangelize almost or apparent disciples, almost Christians. And the other application, the other thing I want us to do with this text is to evaluate ourselves, evaluate whether or not we are Christians. And I think that we do this in community as the church is the best way to do it, helps us from lying to ourselves, right? Your heart's wicked, deceitful. You can trick yourself into believing things that aren't true. And so the church helps to safeguard us from self-deception, and what we want to look for are two things. We want to see, uh, 
is there an invisible work of the Spirit that has happened in me? And is there visible work of the Spirit? Right? Now, here, the visible work of the Spirit is this spiritual phenomena, but I'm going to argue for a more ordinary phenomena that presents itself in the life of every Christian. There is visible work of the Spirit in your life. And so, I don't want to get ahead of myself. <laughs> Back up. Let's just ask the first diagnostic question. Testing ourselves, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to see whether or not we are in the faith. Question number one. Do I believe the gospel? It seems simple enough, but this is where it all begins, with belief. Right? The Bible doesn't paint a good picture of us apart from Christ. It, it images us like dry bones. Or as Ephesians 2 says, children of wrath. Dead in our sins. Titus 3 says that we are hateful towards one another, envying one another, slaves to our passions and our pleasures. I'm thankful that Ephesians 2 and Titus both have beautiful conjunctions. Right, Ephesians 2 continues in verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, has made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our sins. You are saved by grace. He also raised us up with Jesus and set us with him in the heavens, so that in the coming ages he might display his immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. So how do we move from death to life? How, how do we receive this gift of faith? How, do, how does oxygen begin to fill up our spiritual lungs? How do our spiritual hearts begin to beat? Second half of Titus tells us in Titus 3, 4, But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal life. So, so if you believe the gospel, it's because the Holy Spirit has made you alive together with Christ. Your heart has been regenerated, changed, or as uh, Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus says, you, you've been born again by the power of the Spirit. It, it's the grace of God it should lead you to rejoicing. Have you ever thought, of, thought about this? Well, let me, let me back up. I, I had something I wanted to say. I can't remember. Yes, if you believe the gospel, it's because the invisible work of God has taken place in the secret places of your soul. The work that the Holy Spirit does in you 
is as essential to our salvation, to your salvation, as what Jesus did for you. Without the work of the Holy Spirit in you, you would never believe the gospel. And this should excite you because it tells us about the grace of God in saving you. If you believe the gospel, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but is the power of God to those who are being saved, if you believe this gospel, it's because God has been in you. God has been in your head. More than that, we're told that the Holy Spirit indwells us, lives in us. God the Holy Spirit, you you believe this gospel because God the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. It's incredible. So question number one, do I believe the gospel? If you can say yes to that, that means you have the Holy Spirit. If it's a genuine, honest yes. And just so you know that you're not lying to yourself, this is where the church comes in to help you answer this question. What we do when we receive someone into membership is we are saying, yes, this person is professing the gospel rightly. Their confession of Jesus is a right confession, and the conduct of their life is bearing the fruit of repentance. This is someone who has the Holy Spirit. This is someone who believes in Jesus. This is a Christian. And so the church witnesses, together with our own experience, that we indeed are in Christ. All right, question number two in our evaluation of ourselves. Do I belong to a church? Now that might be an unusual question to you, um, but I chose it intentionally. Because belonging to a church is fundamental to the Christian life. It's elementary, my dear Watson, as Sherlock Holmes used to say. I don't know, he's a fictional character, so he still says it, I guess. But this is basic, right? The, The Spirit's invisible work of conversion in a person's life, the invisible work of the Spirit's work of conversion in a person's life, shows up, in the visible fruit of obedience. Specifically, the visible fruit of obedience in baptism, a visible participation in the Lord's Supper, and a visible commitment to the local church. Acts 2, 41-42. So those who accepted his message, those who believed the gospel, were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. Added to what? The church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Christians have been gathering together in churches since the very start. And yet, how many of you seem to be more aligned with the almost Christian? than the Christian held up by Scripture. I I come across so many professing Christians that don't attend church, that don't belong to churches, and I think this is revealing about their hearts because the Bible just doesn't have a category for a Christian that doesn't belong to a church. I mean, you, you can't understand 
the vast majority of commands in the New Testament without the church. All the love one another's have a concrete reality. He's not just saying, love all those people out there, though yes, you should do that. He's saying, love one another, you church specifically, you people that are in relationship with one another. We see the Spirit's work visibly in the arena of the church. Right? 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, that whole section is about building up the church. Go read it this afternoon and just underline how many times you see the word encourage or build up. That's the primary theme of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. If you don't belong to a church, how are you building it up? If you don't belong to a church, how are you obeying? Hebrews 13, 7 and 17. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. And 17, obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. How how can you obey the command to submit to your leaders if you haven't submitted to any leaders? You can't. And I'm going to suggest if you haven't submitted to any leaders, if you haven't submitted yourself to a church, you're probably not obeying the command to gather together regularly. Hebrews 10, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful, and let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately go on sinning, see it's sin to not meet together. If we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume adversaries. How can we obey God's commands apart from the church? The Holy Spirit, if you've believed in Christ, it's because you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, that shows up visibly in these ordinary acts of obedience. The same Spirit that unites us to Christ unites us to one another. Right? 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. I always expected to say, walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. It's not, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, you could flip that and read it this way. If we don't walk in the light as he himself is in the light, then we will not have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, will not cleanse us from all sin. To be in relationship with Jesus is to be in relationship with Jesus' people. The Spirit visibly shows up in how we live our lives and how we obey the Word of God. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, this time uh, 12 through 13 and then 24 through 26. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable. That's verse 24. So that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. 
Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. These words to the Corinthian church apply to every local church. You are the body of Christ. You should have this kind of concern for one another. To the extent that, you should be in one another's lives, to the extent that if one member of your church suffers, that you're all suffering. If one member of your church is honored, that you're all rejoicing. You're to be a body connected to one another. United by the Spirit. You've been given the Spirit for a great many reasons. One of them is to build up the church. This is seen visibly, right? 12, 4 through 7. There are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. And so here's my argument. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will bear the fruit of obedience. This is seen initially in the acts of repentance and baptism, and it is seen continually in the acts of participating in the Lord's Supper and in gathering together with a community as you are submitted to leadership. I didn't state that last part great. But that you belong to a church in a way that is committed and has meaning and that you are obeying the scripture. The Spirit's invisible work of conversion shows up in a person's visible baptism, visible participation in the Lord's Supper, and visible commitment to a local church, to the people in God's church. If this evaluation rubs you the wrong way, I think there are two reasons why. One, you are a disobedient Christian. You just simply, for whatever reason, do not belong to a church, are not submitted to leadership in a church, have not regularly gathered together with other believers. The fruit of repentance in your life is rotten. The answer for you is, is quite simple. <laughs> Repent. Obey God's word. Enjoy the salvation offered to you in Christ Jesus. Our God is rich in mercy and he is a big spender. He loves you. Obey him. Second possibility is that you're either a non-Christian or you're an almost Christian. You, you don't know Jesus. And the answer for you here is the same. Repent. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he died to forgive your sins, that he has risen, will free you from death, is ruling and reigning at God's right hand right now for his church, and will return to make all things new. Believe it. God has mercy for you. He will forgive your sins. When you put your faith in Jesus, he will say of you as he did of Christ, this is my beloved son, this is my beloved daughter, with whom I am well pleased. When you put your faith in Christ, God delights in you. He, yeah, Zephaniah says he sings over you. This still just blows my mind. The creator of the universe rejoicing over me, singing over me. Right? We just, I guess Chelsea had the baby, but I get credit too. 
We had a baby recently, and one of those things that just happens when you have joy, when you have kids, I'm not, I've become a singer as I've aged, I guess, I don't know. But I was never really a singer. And when you get that baby, usually not in public, but by yourself somewhere, all of a sudden you're singing to that baby. Many of you have had this experience. You're singing. It's because you're delighting in that thing. And this, is, this is how God delights in us as his children, as those that he has snatched back from death. And so if you are a non-Christian or an almost Christian, I implore you, come to Christ. He will embrace you in his arms. Lastly, church, the vast majority of you are members here, and I have affirmed your Christianity along with the others in the room. Sermons like this sometimes are misunderstood in the same way the book of 1 John is misunderstood. I think sometimes Christians read through 1 John and they go, am I even a Christian? Am I really saved? You've missed John's point, and I don't want you to miss my point. The question, I'm not trying to cause you to slip into a cacophony of doubt. I'm actually trying to encourage you in the same way the book of 1 John is meant to encourage you. The book of 1 John is, is written so that you may believe these things and have eternal life. Did I get that right, David? All right, some, something similar to that, so that you will believe. Likewise, when we evaluate ourselves, when we ask these questions about the Holy Spirit, it's not meant to, to bring doubt. I mean, maybe if you're not a Christian, that's where you need to end up and you need to repent. But if you're already a Christian, this should encourage you. It should thrill you. It should stir up your soul. Because it means you have believed the gospel. That you have the Holy Spirit. That you are united to Jesus. That you have the love of God in the same way Jesus does. That you are part of Jesus' body. That you have been crucified with Christ. It means that you will be raised with Christ. It means that you will reign with Christ when he returns to make all things new. That's good news. All Christians have the Holy Spirit. And so you should walk away encouraged. Praise God, his spirit is still active along with his word. And as his word is proclaimed, he still saves sinners. He's building his church in the book of Acts, and he's building his church today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Pray that you would afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. That you would use the gospel of grace as a balm in the lives of those who are wounded those who are weary and weak, pray that you would encourage them this morning. Others of us need to be humbled, reminded of our need for Christ. We ask that you would do that. We pray that you would make us a people who recognize Christ as our Lord, who delight in this work of the Spirit in us, and who create opportunities to share about Christ, even to a parent disciple. 
pray that our knowledge of your grace and mercy to us would never puff us up with arrogance. That's stupid. But it would remind us just of your loving kindness. It would lead us to bowing down before you in worship and saying, what a God, what a Savior. You're so beautiful. I love you. Lord, these are our words this morning. That we love you, our God above all else. Indeed, you are holy, holy, holy. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.